Hello and welcome to She's the Doctor, the podcast where we hear from women in medicine about their life and career so far. We'll discuss their interests and achievements, but also explore challenges and failures. I'm your host, Dr. Radhika Thakra, an oversharing, houseplant-loving paediatric trainee in London. Every week, I'll be interviewing women from a range of backgrounds in a variety of medical specialties and at different points in their career, each with their own story to tell. Miss Deepa Bose has been an orthopaedic consultant for 13 years, specialising in trauma and limb reconstruction. Today, she shares her story, starting in Guyana to mastering a classically male-dominated specialty as an Asian woman. We discuss issues that affect female surgical trainees, including having children, working less than full-time, and the importance of mentorship in medicine. We also hear about the work she does teaching orthopaedics in developing nations, including Guyana, Ukraine, and Palestine. This conversation was both inspiring and reassuring about life as a woman in surgery. Deepa is an absolute pleasure to speak to, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome, Ms. Bose. Thank you so much for joining me today on She's the Doctor. It's a real honor to have you here. Oh, thank you for asking me. It's an honor to be here. I'd just like to start by asking if you could give us a little bit of an overview of your life and what's brought you here, <laughs> what's brought you to where you are today. Okay, so um, I, I was born in, in South America in a small country called Guyana in South mm-hmm. America. Um, but my dad was Indian and my mum was a third generation uh, Indian family who had settled there. And so uh, when I came to study medicine, um, I went to India to my dad's old uh, medical school, which is Calcutta Medical College in Calcutta. So I did my medical degree there. And then after a year and a bit, I came to the UK. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I knew uh, that I wanted to do surgery. So since I was a medical student, I... Uh, I had chosen surgery, so I knew I wanted to do some branch of surgery, but I wasn't sure which. So uh, when I was in India, I did a bit of general surgery and a bit of orthopedics. And then when I came to the UK, um, I did some more orthopedics and I really enjoyed it. And so I decided that that was what I wanted to do. Um, And so I... uh, I then uh, did various SHO jobs uh, after my exam. I got onto the Welsh orthopedic training program and did that. And then when I finished, uh, I uh, during my uh, registrar training, I decided that I wanted to specialize in trauma. And so I did a, a fellowship in bone infection and limb reconstruction in Oxford at the Nuffield in Oxford. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I spent a year as a locum consultant in St. George's, where you are now. <laughs> um, and then I got my substantive job at uh, University Hospital Birmingham. And that's where I've been ever since. Wow. And you've been a consultant for how long now? Uh, 13 years. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I really love this. And I have to say that hearing your story as an Asian woman as well is even more inspiring because things are hard now, but they were much harder even 10, 15 years ago. And I would love to chat to you a bit more about that as well. What made you decide to do a career in orthopedics out of all the different surgical specialties? Um, well, so it wasn't my intention originally to do orthopedics. I, I, I was always of a surgical mind, so I knew I wanted to do surgery. Um, and initially I wanted to do general surgery and then I 
wanted to do pediatric surgery. Um, but I did uh, a stint as an SHO in pediatric surgery. And although I loved the surgery um, and I loved the children, I found the things around it difficult to deal with, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, such as uh, the pediatric wards. You, you have to be a, a certain, I think, you have to have a certain personality to, to enjoy working there and and then I did uh, six months of orthopedics. So I'd already done a bit in India. And when I came mm. here, I did a bit more. And I just, it just felt right. It, like, you know, immediately, I, it just felt like that was what I was meant to do. And so I was lucky, I guess, um, because it's, uh, I've, I haven't looked back since then. So, yeah. And what did your dad do? Because you mentioned he, he's a doctor as well. Yeah, that's right. So um, he was a general practitioner. And then later on in life, he specialized in psychiatry. Mm-hmm. Okay, nice. Back when you started orthopedic training, and when you became a consultant, how was it being a woman in orthopedics? Uh, so we were few and far between. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to say, again, I was very fortunate because uh, no one ever told me that I couldn't do it. Um, and I've had some fantastic role models, male and female. Uh, but it's, you know, when, when it's appealed to me and I knew that I, uh, this was something I wanted to do, I started to look around for role models. And there weren't many women, but there were one or two. Uh, I mentioned in particular Patricia Allen, who was a foot and ankle surgeon in Leicester, and uh, Ruth Case, uh, who is now retired, but was a consultant orthopedic surgeon in Bristol and Western Supermare. Um, so they were my role models and my mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've had other brilliant male role models and mentors as well. And I have to say, you know, no, no one ever said you can't do this. No one, no one ever tried to put me off. So I was very lucky. I'm really glad to hear that because I do often hear and see people saying that they've been advised not to pursue a career in surgery or even other medical specialties. Women are told not to do them because they wouldn't fit in that environment or they couldn't have a family and things like that. So I'm really glad to hear that that didn't happen to you even that long ago. No, um, I I think I was lucky because I know that it does happen, as you say. Mm. And I think even now it does happen, which I, I feel really sad to hear that. Um, because I, I hope that there are now so many more of us than there used to be. I hope that the message is finally getting out there that actually it's perfectly possible yeah. uh, to do surgery as a woman and to combine it very successfully with a family. Yeah. And um, when you started, how many other female trainees were there? Uh, so in our rotation, when I started, uh, there was one other girl who was uh, nearing the end of the rotation. And mm. then uh, as we went along, there were more of us. So we ended up being about five or six in the rotation. And so over the years, it's, it became more and more. Yeah. And how about how did you find it being an Asian woman in, in orthopedics? And even now, how do you find it? Have you ever felt that that's had its implications? Um, do you know what? I, <laughs> I, I, I feel I've been really lucky because, again, I know listening to other women and listening to uh, some of the juniors coming up now, I, I know that this this has the sort of intersectionality, as it's called, mm. it, it can be a problem. But I, I, I've been extremely fortunate. Um, I've, I've not had, well, I don't think I faced any problems uh, because of that in particular. 
Um, mm -hmm. And I've had some amazing uh, role models and mentors who've helped me through. I never felt uh, disadvantaged at at uh, at any point um, because of those characteristics. And what would you say to trainees that might come to you now and and talk about these sorts of things with you? I try my best to encourage and support them uh, because we know that, uh, that now, you know, we, we have so many different role models for surgeons. It's yeah. not just the stereotypical um, Lancelot Spratt type figure. Uh, yeah. There's so many of us now. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the great things I, I said to one of my trainees last year when I went to the British Orthopedic Association, the annual conference, um, is that when I used to go to these conferences as a young uh, trainee, um, I, I knew most of the women there. I knew mm -hmm. who they were and where they were. And I go to the, the BOA conference now, and I don't know half the women in there. And that's amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a really nice way to put it. Mm. And you mentioned having a family. Do you, do you have children? I don't. Uh, but I'd say I'm a bit atypical in that respect because most of the women surgeons that I know do have a family. Mm -hmm. And how have they managed it? What, do you, what have you seen them do to manage the time with, along with working? Uh, I, I think you do have to have a little bit of... Um, you, you need a, a support network of some kind uh, to help you. And it would be wrong of me to say that it's not challenging. I think it is challenging, yeah. but equally, I think that any busy job you did would be the same. So if you were, let's say, working in finance or you were a banker in the city or a lawyer, you'd face exactly the same challenges combining mm -hmm. a busy career with having a family. So it's not unique to surgery or to medicine. Mm. That's one thing I always think about too, like when we talk about the bad sides of being a doctor or why it's stressful or the long hours, I'm, I do often have to remind myself and other people I'm talking to that medicine is not the only career that has bad days and we're not the only ones like working long hours. And I know there's, there's different caveats to those things like the pay and like staying late and things like that, but mm. like all careers have challenges um, and women in lots of different careers will, will have to balance having children and doing their jobs. So it's not unique to us, which I think is sometimes helpful to remember because we often kind of, I think, can just think it's just a doctor problem, but it's yeah. it's not. And I think especially right now with everything, there's obviously a lot of negativity around being a doctor at the moment, which makes me really sad. Um, but I think even, especially, it's even more important to, to remember that it's not like if you went and became a banker, your life would be easy yeah. tomorrow. No, absolutely right. And, and uh, I agree with you completely. Um, and as you said, there is quite a lot of negativity around at the moment. And I understand why that is. Mm. Uh, and I do think that it is in, in many ways harder now than it used to be. Um, uh, but uh, I think it would be sad if people who wanted to do it were put off uh, by listening to those things. And I think that Certainly for my generation, the, there is a, a, a responsibility on us um, to uh, try and improve things for those who come after us. Mm. But I, I think they really are put off, like whether it be um, pursuing a career in medicine or surgery or even in particular orthopedics, because in my head, orthopedics is the most male-dominated field of surgery. Um, 
I, I, I do know that medical students are very much put off by that. Um, what would you say to, to that or to any medical student who wasn't sure about, about a career in surgery because of that? Uh, so again, I, th I think you're right. And, and it is, of all the surgical specialties, it's the one with the least uh, percentage of female uh, trainees yeah. and consultants. Um, but year on year, it is slowly improving. So I think mm -hmm. the, the, the last figure, which was around sort of 2020, was about 12% uh, of uh, orthopedic consultants are female. And if you look at the trainees, the percentage is more. So about mm. 30 or 25 percent of higher surgical trainees in orthopedics are female. Uh, but if, if you look at how large the specialty is and how many consultants there are, uh, you'd see that in order for it to increase by one percent, you need a huge number of female okay. consultants for that to happen. So although change is happening, it, it seems very, very slow. But nonetheless, it is happening. As I said to you, I can see that change myself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that if anyone felt that it was for them and they wanted to do it, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be put off by the fact that it's seen as male-dominated because that landscape is changing. Yeah. And what are the attitudes towards being less than full-time in orthopedics? Because in, in pediatrics, it's, very, it's a very common... Yeah thing but I, from what I know and understand especially from Twitter I don't think it's as common in orthopedics it's probably not as common as uh, pediatrics but it is uh, you know it's no longer a remarkable thing many trainees are doing it and that applies to men and women so on our rotation in Birmingham we have several male trainees who are less than full-time and they do that so that they can share in the uh, childcare. So mm. it's for us in Birmingham, it's it's not a novelty, and I don't think it is in in many rotations. So it's certainly yeah. uh, perfectly accepted, um, yeah. and you know I think less than full time trainees have a, um, a rough deal because it is hard for them. Uh, but I think, as I say, we're getting better at how we manage that, and certainly um, for as long as I've known. Uh, we've had less than full-time trainees on our rotation. I think it's the same across the country, actually. Mm. So whilst it may not be as uh, common in other specialties, it certainly it does exist. Why do you think that they have a, you said they have a rough deal? Why is that? What, what in particular? I think it's to do with the practicalities of it and the way that uh, mm -hmm. it's arranged. And there's probably there's probably more work to be done from, from the uh, our side in terms of Health Education England, the deaneries, um, and the colleges in making uh, less than full-time uh, more more workable, as it were. So I, I, I think the real work now is not to make it acceptable because it's accepted. I think the mm. real work now is to make it more practical and more workable in terms of the mechanics of it. And I guess with surgical specialties, the day of the week that you're not working is very important given what list and what clinic is yeah. on as well. Whereas obviously in PEDS, that's less applicable. Correct. So I can see how that can affect, that can make a difference as well for the less than full-time You're trainees. absolutely right. That actually brings us nicely onto your role in the Specialist Advisory Committee. So I didn't actually know what that meant. And so I Googled it. But do you mind just telling the <laughs> listeners what, what is the Specialist Advisory Committee? Yeah, so um, as, as the name suggests, it's an advisory body uh, to the uh, four royal colleges, uh, mm -hmm. to the four surgical colleges. 
Um, and basically, it has um, uh, oversight. It has certain responsibilities. For example, uh, it's responsible for updating and rewriting the curriculum regularly. Uh, it's mm -hmm. responsible for having oversight of training in all the different deaneries and regions in the country, of uh, providing externality to the ARCP process so that it's fair and transparent, uh, for making sure that trainees have met the criteria for CCT. Mm -hmm. So it, it has various um, duties and responsibilities uh, in dealing with training and education. Uh, on a national but, level. By on a national level, yes. Wow. So that's quite a high up role, isn't it? <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, yes. I mean, it's been a journey to get there, obviously. I mean, you, you, you start off uh, locally and then you, mm. you sort of uh, gain, gain experience and, and work your way up. Yeah. And what kind of changes have you made or what kind of things have you been involved with from, from that perspective? So uh, one thing I've been involved with is the curriculum. So uh, mm -hmm. rewriting the new orthopedic curriculum. So all curricula um, have to be updated regularly. So that's mandated by the GMC uh, mm -hmm. because a curriculum is supposed to be a living document and it has to be updated regularly to make sure that it's still fit for purpose. So uh, the last uh, edition of the curriculum, uh, I, I was involved in that. Um, I also have a national role in uh, CESA uh, applications. So CESA, um, uh, for people who don't know, is the Certificate of Equivalence of Specialist Registration. So it is for um, trainees who have not been on a recognized training program, but are able to be accepted onto the specialist register by demonstrating uh, equivalence. Uh, mm. in all the domains that uh, would be required of a trainee. Um, uh, orthopedics is quite a popular specialty. So of all the surgical specialties, we have uh, the largest number of applications to enter onto the specialist register via the CESA route. Okay. And so I'm the uh, lead for uh, reviewing CESA applications in orthopedics. Yeah, we, I actually had an interesting episode. My second episode is Dr. Priyadashini Marate, and she CESA'd in A&E and it was quite interesting talking to her about her reasons for doing it and and how it worked so if anyone wants to know more about that you can go back and listen to that episode um you mentioned that it, it had been quite a long process to get to where you are what kind of things had you been doing to 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 get into this role eventually because obviously as you say you can't you wouldn't just go straight there you start building up your skills with each role what sort of things did you do yeah, so I've I've always been uh, interested in education and in training mm -hmm. and uh I've always taught um, on an informal basis. So from the time I was an SHO and then a registrar, I always used to teach uh, medical students and uh, other juniors on an informal basis. Um, when I did my uh, fellowship in bone infection and limb reconstruction, I used to teach the um, Oxford medical students. Mm -hmm. And that was then a slightly more formal role. And then because I was interested in education, I was looking around for some kind of course or qualification that I could do. And so I completed a master's in medical education from Cardiff University. Um, and I completed that when I was a, a young consultant. Um, and then I started to get more involved in examinations and uh, ARCPs and things like that um, at a local level. 
um, and then I uh, joined the specialist training committee in our region and then I became a training program director for core surgery mm-hmm. um, and then you just move on from there so yeah that's that's how I sort of climbed the educational ladder. That's really nice to hear because I quite like education as well particularly from a like doctor to doctor perspective um so it's quite nice to kind of think about the things my the ways my career could evolve as I as I become more senior because it's quite hard to imagine that now but it's nice to know that the things you do now slowly build on each other to then get you into different roles when you're more senior oh absolutely absolutely it's never too early to start no (laughs) um and tell me more about your work that you do with the world world orthopedic concern because that seems really interesting, but I, I couldn't find much about it. And I'd love to hear more about, about the work the charity does. Yeah, so I again, it's like education. Something I've always been interested in is global surgery. So I grew up in Guyana in South America, which at the time was a low-income country. It's, uh, it's now, there have been several economic changes over the years. So it's now classed as middle income. Uh, but at the time, it was a low-income country. And then I went to study medicine in India, which is also... Um, or was at the time a low-income country. Mm. And uh, I, I, I have a strong sense of wanting to give back. Um, and so I've always been interested in charitable and humanitarian work. And as a registrar, I joined World Orthopedic Concern. So World Orthopedic Concern is a charity uh, that deals mostly with uh, improving orthopedic care in low- and middle-income countries through the medium of education. So by teaching and training uh, local trainees and local surgeons. Um, and that's that's been around for a long time. And uh, it's always uh, part of the, the British Orthopedic Association Congress. They always have um, a stand at the Congress. And when I was a young registrar, I think possibly second or third year registrar, I bumped into the stand at the BOA and mm-hmm. uh, I joined up. And then I, even though I joined up and I paid my subscriptions, I wasn't really active as a trainee. Mm. And then as a consultant, I went to one of their meetings and um, someone asked me to get more involved. And then I, so I did. And then I, I became the secretary um, and then I became the chairman. And uh, I've just handed that over. So I'm now the past chairman. So okay. like with the education, it, it's a it's it's a process. Um, uh, so, yes, um, it's uh, again, for people who don't know, it's it's a really great organization. We're a very small charity. Uh, we don't have uh, a lot of money, but we try our best to use it to facilitate education and training in low and middle income countries. So do you go to the countries and, and train? I do. I do. So I, in addition to World Orthopedic Concern, I'm, I belong to a couple of different NGOs who go, mm-hmm. who, um, go abroad. Um, so with World Orthopedic Concern, I go back to Guyana, where I grew up, and I uh, work with uh, the registrars there. I've rewritten their curriculum a couple of times now, uh, trying to bring it more in line with the um, with the British curriculum, but obviously. Uh, relevant to their context and their environment Mm. Um, and so I have a lot to do with education in postgraduate orthopedics in Guyana Um, and then uh, I belong to a couple of other NGOs so I go out to Gaza for as part of a limb reconstruction project 
and uh, I've recently been out to Ukraine. Wow. And, and you're not operating there, you're teaching? Um, it's a combination of both. So it's sort of operating and teaching, but I never operate as the primary surgeon. Uh, and I never operate on my own because the idea is to facilitate the local team um, rather than me operating. That's incredible that, that you're, you're doing that. And are you doing this all on annual leave? Yep, mostly. <laughs> yes. Wow. That's really, really inspiring to hear that, that you're doing things like that. And yeah, again, the sort of thing I would love to be able to do things like that when, when I'm more senior, but you kind of, you think you have all these ideas of things you want to do and you don't know how they'll all interplay. So it's nice to, to hear about all the things that you've been doing and how you've been helping in other countries. And why do you think that's so important to you? Why, why do you like doing it? Um, that's a good question, actually. <laughs> um, I, I think, as I said, there's a, there's a part of me that feels very strongly that I want to give back mm. um, to, to the countries that I come from, that my family comes from. Um, but not just to those countries, to any country, really. I, I think uh, health inequality is, uh, is uh, you know, it's not often in the front of our minds. We think of, mm. when we say health inequality, we may think of it as within the UK. For example, people talk about a postcode lottery. But when you think globally, um, most of healthcare workers are concentrated in uh, in countries like in the Western world, so in the mm. UK or the USA or Europe. Whereas if you look at the need, most of the need is in countries where uh, the density of healthcare workers is very, very low. Um, and it seems to me that those should be reversed. And yeah. I, I, I feel strongly about healthcare inequality. And I, I think, you know, we shouldn't really live in a world where one country has access to all kinds of fancy, fancy stuff, and another country are—they're really struggling for basic surgical care. Um, yeah. And I mean, for those of you who are interested in this sort of thing, you may know about the Lancet Commission. Um, so the Lancet commissioned um, a, a, a huge, huge uh, survey into uh, surgical care in low and middle-income countries. And uh, they found think, basic things like access to an emergency cesarean section or managing an open fracture, which is common in low mm. income countries, you know, because yeah. of uh, lack of road safety and all things and things like that. Um, and they found that access to those kinds of surgical procedures, which are life saving, uh, yeah. was was really, really inadequate and very poor. And um Actually, if, if you talk about the global burden of disease, people tend to focus on things like HIV and malaria. Um, uh, but actually, uh, trauma is, is a massive, it constitutes one of the biggest causes of death and disability in mm. uh, those countries across the world. And so there's a lot of scope for us to be able to help. And, and I guess even teaching basic things like tourniqueting uh, injury, can be so life-saving but people don't know that so they, they wouldn't do it and that yeah. affects morbidity and mortality yeah. what kind of difference have you seen that your work has has made have you been able to have any like numbers or stories um no not particularly numbers but uh i i have so for example one of the things i'm proudest of with world orthopedic concern is our involvement in ethiopia 
Um, mm -hmm. So we've been involved in Ethiopia for many years, before, even before my time. Uh, we've been involved in Ethiopia, and uh, it was one of the countries that had the lowest uh, density of uh, orthopedic of any surgeons, not just orthopedic surgeons, of any surgeons in the world. And now, when I look at Ethiopia, I you know every year they have surgeons qualifying, and the number is is higher and higher every year. And the, the really great thing is that they now have several women who've qualified in orthopedics and are practicing as orthopedic surgeons in Ethiopia. And that, to me, is amazing. I always like to ask, what would you say is a highlight of your career so far? Or are there any, any few that you would like to talk about? I think being able to get up in the morning and do a job that I absolutely love and get paid for it is it's the best thing in the world. Um, that that's I, I can't describe to you how much that means to me. I'm I'm so lucky to be able to do that. I'm really, you know, I love my job. I really do. Um, you know, even outpatient clinics, which traditionally surgeons do, are meant to not like, <laughs> um, I even love those. I, I I really love my job so much, and I'm so passionate about it. So I feel extremely fortunate to be able to do it and make a good living from it. It's so nice to hear that because, like I said earlier, with all the negativity around being a doctor, I think I often think that there are so many of us that enjoy being a doctor. I'm included. I really love it. But because I, I think the people who don't like it shout louder or bad news spreads quicker. So when people love their job and something good happens, that can't, no one really cares. So you don't see that on your Twitter feed or on your Instagram or your friends don't tell you about their really good day at work. They'll, you'll only hear the bad side of it. And now I think especially I, I know definitely medical students are really anxious about becoming doctors because of all the negativity that they see. Yeah. So it's very nice to hear that as someone who's been a consultant for 13 years, you still love your job. You still get out of bed each day looking forward to going to work. Um, that's really, really nice to hear. Thank you. I, I agree. I think there is a lot of negativity and, you know, I, I feel like we should, the message needs to be a bit more balanced and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's all, uh, lovely and there are no problems. Mm. Of course there are. And I, I do think that this current generation of doctors, um, uh, uh, they, they have a lot more to, to deal yeah. with than we did. Um, and I, I think things are a lot harder for them financially and otherwise. Um, mm. And I think it's a shame, but as, as you say, it's, it's important to, to say to say the positives as well. And uh, yes, I, I feel sad that it is like that. And I think that there is an onus, there is a moral responsibility on my generation to try and improve things because if we don't do it, who else will? Yeah, and also it's nice to hear you say that because sometimes I think we can often see consultants not understanding what we're going through as trainees and you can always just hear people say, back, oh, back in my day we did this, but actually their day was different and the way the hospital worked was different and the workload was different yeah. and the, the amount of time a patient stayed in hospital was different. Like er, Things are very different now and it's, yeah. it's quite hard to compare it. Um, but it, it's nice to hear that you kind of are, are saying about the onus being on, on seniors as well to help with the juniors. And and how about um, on the other side of things? What would you say some of the challenges of your career have been? Uh, I think the NHS is possibly like any any other big system uh, where uh, we we're facing so much trouble now in terms of uh, you know uh, 
what we can do for the patients. I mean, financially, it's always been a challenge. Um, and particularly in a post-COVID world where we have so many staff shortages and problems with staff retention, um, it's, it, it, it can be a real challenge to deliver the care that we need to deliver um, and certainly the quality that we would like to deliver. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think at the moment that is the biggest challenge and I, uh, I don't really know what the answer is. I don't think anyone has an answer, an, an easy answer. But that, to me, is the real challenge right now in the NHS is is, is trying to counter the effects of uh, funding and staff shortages to provide the kind of care that people really need. And do you feel that there's a big difference compared to maybe when you when you started your consultant career? Um, I, I think there are certain differences. Yes. Um, uh, as I say, I think funding is one and that never seems to get any better. Um, mm. But staff shortages now are a big problem. Um, okay, compared to There used to be a pool of staff that you could call upon, uh, which just doesn't exist anymore. Um, and it has to do with, you know, changing rules. COVID is a big factor. We've lost a lot of staff. Um, I think, uh, you know, other things in the political landscape are also factors. Um, mm. So, yeah. And how about um, personally? Were there ever any points where you thought in your career that things, if you don't mind sharing, obviously, um, where you felt that actually things were really challenging or it maybe wasn't worth carrying on with with your orthopaedic training? Um, I think we all probably have moments like that. Um, mm. I don't think it's that unusual, to be perfectly honest. I think we all have moments where we question our choices and where it's challenging and just like everyone else I've had times both as a trainee and as a consultant where I found it difficult um, but uh, I, I think at those times I just uh, carried on as, as, as we all tend to do and I'm so glad I have because I never although it was hard I, I, I never thought this isn't worth it mm-hmm and so it, for me, it's always been worth it to, to carry on through the hard times. And I've always found support, um, which, again, I, I think for most people out there listening to this, please know that there is always support. It might not mm. be obvious to you. And sometimes you get into a place where you think that no one understands what you're going through or no one is there to support you. But that's never true. It's never the case. And uh, when I needed support, I always found it. I always mm. found good mentors, people to support and help me through the rough patches. And that's both as a trainee and as a consultant. And, and where would you advise people look for support? Uh, so I would advise everyone to have a mentor um, or mentors because at different stages in your career, you need different things. And so uh, everyone needs different mentors. And even at the same stage in your career, you may need different mentors for different things. So you yeah. have one mentor for one area of your life and another mentor for another area of your life. Um, so I, I would strongly recommend that people find mentors. There is obviously an official route that you can go down for anything to do with your training. So that starts with your educational supervisor and then your mm -hmm. training program director if you have one. Um, if you don't have one, every trust has um, a structure and an educational infrastructure that uh, where you can uh, look for help, your clinical tutor, your surgical tutor. 
So there are always people uh, uh, on the official channels that you can go to, but I, I would strongly recommend that everyone has either officially or unofficially a mentor or mentors. And mm. if you if you have mentors who are both consultants and your peers, then that's the best uh, possible combination, I think, because your peers understand what you're going through and can give you that kind of peer support and fellowship. And and this is where, I, 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 as you say, I, I don't want to go down that route of saying, oh, in my day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is where I feel life is a lot harder for, for trainees now, is that when I was a trainee, we worked longer hours and we were in the hospital for longer, but it meant that we had a community. Yeah. And if I was in trouble as a trainee or I needed help, I knew that I could go to the mess and there would always be someone there who would help me. And I think now the work-life balance is probably better. Yeah. You're in the hospital less, but because you're in the hospital less and you don't see each other as often, you lose that community. Mm. And so we have to find substitutes for that community, either within your team or within your department. And how did you, from a mentorship point of view, how would you recommend someone to actually like formalize that? Because I've only have ever had mentors from my clinical su- mentorship from my clinical or educational supervisors, mm-hmm. and there are probably registrars or consultants who I think are actually really cool, and I would learn a lot from them. But yeah. I, I don't know. Do you just email them and say hi? Can you be my yeah. mentor? Literally, yes. <laughs> so there are there are formal mentorship schemes. So. Um, I think quite a number of deaneries have them where yeah. you can formally be matched with a mentor. Um, uh, but even informally, I mean, obviously, mentorship is nothing new. And when I was a trainee, I had mentors too. It's just that it wasn't a formal relationship. So literally, if, if I had a consultant or a, or a registrar who uh, I thought I would learn a lot from or who had attributes or uh, characteristics that I admired, um, I would go and talk to them. And that's how you build up a rapport because, you know, you, you go and mm. talk to people. And so if, if you have any anyone that you, you feel you would like as a mentor, I would just email them or just say, you know, can, can we meet over coffee and start the relationship from there? And you, you'll find that not, not everyone is... Um, you won't gel with everyone, mm. but you'll gel with someone. Yeah, I actually, I don't think I'd actually thought about mentorship much until recording the podcast because a few people have now mentioned it and it's not really something that ever, has ever really crossed my mind. Um, but people talk about it so much that I'm just understanding and realizing the importance of it, especially from your professional career development side. It really, really helps. Um, so I definitely feel inspired to formalize some mentoring relationships for my own benefit you were talking about how the role models that you had when you started your surgical training but now you must be a role model to so many other people so it's quite nice to see how that's come full circle it it is nice and I again I I feel enormously privileged to be in that position it's like you've made it like you started from one point and now you've like crossed the line and you've made it to the other line where you are now other people's role models compared to the other way around yeah, that's a scary thought, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what sort of things do you like to get up to in your spare time or when you're not working or volunteering? 
Um, so I'm a voracious reader. I read a lot. Yeah, um, I can see all your books behind you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I, uh, that's my big thing is I read a lot and I also travel a lot. So I travel for pleasure as well as for um, the work that I do. And how do you find time to travel along with a consultant rotor? Is it is it because I always imagine it to be really hard. Um, no, it, it, so I, I try and make the most of my annual leave. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I try and make the most of my annual leave. Um, uh, and I try and so if I'm going somewhere to do something like if I'm going somewhere to do to be an examiner or going somewhere to do some humanitarian work, I'll tag like a little trip onto it so yeah. that I have some time to myself and I get to visit really amazing places. So it's, uh, it's good. Um, have you got any trips coming up planned? Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm going to Guyana in October as well to do some work. Um, uh, so I'm looking forward to that. It's so nice that you you go back to where you were born to, yeah. to do that work. It must feel really I don't know. How does it feel when you when you when you do that? Oh, it feels really special. It feels really special. Yeah, yeah. Completely. And do you still have family there? Yes, um, one of my sisters is there, so it's okay. it's a great opportunity to catch up with her as well. Yeah. Oh, that's really nice. And another question I always like to ask everyone is is what kind what piece of advice would you give to a younger version of yourself to any point you at any point in life? I would just say don't doubt yourself. I did a lot of that when I was younger, and I still do it now. And I think that any conscientious doctor, any conscientious person probably does that. And so yeah. I, 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 when I was young, I did doubt myself a lot. And when I was a new consultant, I suffered quite badly from imposter syndrome. Mm. Um, and so I would say just don't doubt yourself. Um, if you enjoy it, do it, and you'll, you'll be fine. In what kind of ways were you doubting yourself? Was it your clinical ability? Was it your the fact that you were an hour consultant and you felt that like this wasn't right? What kind of ways were you doubting yourself? Yeah, I mean, imposter syndrome. I mean, you probably know that it's fairly common in in women, particularly. Mm. And then, yeah, you do feel like, you know, I somehow this is a mistake, and I'm a consultant, but I'm not really ready to be a consultant. And and actually, that's wrong. You are ready, um, yeah. but, but you doubt yourself. And it doesn't just happen to women. It happens to men too. It happens to everyone, yeah. I think, to a certain extent. When I first heard about imposter syndrome, I like felt seen. I was like, this explains me to a T. Um, I still get it now. Like I'm in peds training and I, I'm like, oh, but I've just had easy shifts. So I've never had anyone too sick. So I'm not actually a very good doctor because because of how things have happened. Or because I had my A&E rotation over COVID. I'm like, I didn't really do a proper A&E rotation and da, 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 da. But you just like, I almost try to excuse my successes yeah. because I feel like they just, I don't deserve them. Mm. Um, and then I tell like friends this and people are just like, what are you talking about? Like you are here because of everything you've done and you're meant to be here but it's just I don't know we just often get really hard on ourselves and yeah. tell ourselves that we shouldn't be where we are yeah yeah no, what, what right. sort of things do you ha or did you do to over help overcome it or if, if a junior came to you with these kind of things what would you advise or say uh, exactly what you just said I would say that you, <laughs> you got here because of your hard work and your ability and yeah. actually you're here because you deserve to be here and although it feels, you know, it feels insecure and it feels shaky, but actually it's fine. And and also these days, you don't have to do everything yourself. Even as a consultant, mm. you can still seek help and advice from your colleagues. 
So you're never really alone. That's one thing I, I think I, le- I started to learn when I became a doctor, because I think when I was a medical student, I thought once you're a consultant, you're on your own, you, um, you're the sole responsible person. And then w- when I started F1 and F2, you see the consultants just be like, oh, can I just discuss this with you? Or what do you think about this? And I found that really reassuring because it's not actually, like you're far less alone as a consultant than you imagine as a junior. Great. Well, I, I think that might be everything I, I want to speak to you today, Deepa. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, no, I would just say, um, so for any medical students listening out there, um, the British Orthopedic Association Congress has a day for medical students. So please oh, look nice. it up online and come along. Um, anyone who thinks they'd like to do surgery or like to do orthopedics in particular, please don't be put off by any stories that you hear. Um Uh, It's challenging, but in a good way. And there's lots of people here to mentor and support you through it. So please don't be put off. And if any of the trainees are listening and you're having a tough time, and I know that you are at the moment, um, I would say 100% that it's worth it. And uh, if anyone wants to reach out to me, please do. Yeah. How can people reach you? Um, uh, I'm on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is deepamasafa one and yeah. uh yeah and my email uh is deeper.bose at uhb.nhs.uk so kind of you to share thank you so much i'll put those in in the show notes as well so if anyone okay. did want to contact you but thank you so much deeper i hope you have a really nice weekend enjoy the bank holiday weekend and thank you um thanks so much for coming when she's the doctor thank you for inviting me it's been a real pleasure thank you Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed the show so far, then don't forget to subscribe and please leave a review on your podcast app as it really helps other people find out about it. If you have any feedback or suggestions, drop me a line on my Instagram at Dr. Radica. The link is in the show notes. Have a good week.